Well, amen. There is a rather troublesome pattern that I believe exists within Christian circles and even reform ones today that's common because really it's somewhat natural. And that pattern is to look within ourselves or to look at ourselves when we struggle with things like, in in particular, our assurance of salvation or our justification and even um, our growth in grace or our sanctification. And this really happens more times than we probably want to admit uh, because many of us... um, Well, in many cases, a lot of us have grown up hearing uh, one or more of the following things. Um, And I'm going to paraphrase. These aren't original with me, and they're paraphrases of something that I read from Aaron this week. Uh, We've been taught that our ongoing work, rather than the finished work of Christ, is the basis of our assurance. Um, Many of us have been taught that there is a measurable level of holiness that must be achieved to truly be saved. We have been taught that the practice of spiritual disciplines rather than the participation in the simple means of grace produce the ongoing growth needed to reach that measurable level of holiness. And then we've also heard that paying much closer attention to the word that we've heard that was the focal point of our passage last week is really means that we're supposed to commit ourselves to living wholeheartedly and not half-heartedly for the Lord rather than looking to and keeping our eyes upon and trusting in and reminding ourselves and resting in the Lord Jesus and His gospel. And this kind of, this kind of thinking that we very easily fall back into is never more harmful than when it's passed on, um, when it's passed on as advice to people who are experiencing some sort of suffering. If they're suffering due to the experiences of trials and certain circumstances that they're in the midst of, or if that suffering accompanies some sort of uh, ongoing temptations that we all encounter throughout the course of a day or a week. And why I say that it's, it's so harmful is because in the midst of the suffering is when we're at our weakest. And because we're at our weakest, in, in the midst of that suffering, we, we shouldn't do anything other than to look to the Lord Jesus. Because if we look to ourselves or if we look at ourselves for any type of hope, all we're really led to is deeper despair. Because all it really does is lead to and confirms the lies that we're already believing. And don't get me wrong, I, you know, you've, you know me well enough to know that growth and grace and sanctification and good works are all a part of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's a part of our faith. And we heard that throughout Leviticus. You know, and we're going to hear in just a minute that holiness is a distinguishable characteristic of those who have been saved and who are being sanctified and have been sanctified and are being sanctified. Christ has purchased our justification. He has purchased our sanctification. He has purchased our glorification. But brothers and sisters, to quote the Apostle Paul, it is God who is working in us by His Spirit, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 
He is the one who began a good work in us. And he will bring it about. He will bring a, bring us and bring that to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And while sanctification is God's will for us. We must not be foolish and think that what began by the spirit is perfected by the flesh. So rather than look to ourselves, rather than look within or look at our behavior, we should always look to Christ, especially in the midst of our suffering. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He says that our suffering servant, our suffering substitute, is our consummate hope, our conquering hero, and our constant help. That's the outline for tonight in this passage from Hebrews 2, 10 to 18. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, would you by your spirit allow us tonight and in the months ahead to see and hear the truth about Christ from the book of Hebrews in such a way that our souls expand. And as our soul expands, may he expand. Would you open our eyes and ears and enlighten our minds in such a way that we find him bigger each week. May we consider him more fully and completely. And as we do, help us to strive to enter into the rest that you have provided for us in and through him. And I pray these things in the more excellent name of Jesus, our suffering substitute. Amen. Well, I'm sure you remember if you were here, if you weren't here, we're in the middle of chapter two. We're going to conclude chapter two tonight. And if If you were here, you remember in verse 9 where we concluded that the author said this. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He says it was because of Christ's suffering and death and his subsequent resurrection an exaltation or, or ascension that he was exalted and crowned with glory. He is currently at the right hand of the Father. He's the ultimate king, to go back even to the beginning of chapter 1. All things have been placed under his feet. Everything is under his subjection to him. He's reigning spiritually. One day he is going to reign triumphantly upon his return. He was the second Adam who accomplished what the first Adam couldn't and didn't. And he did so as our representative, as our substitute. So he is our suffering substitute. But we know if you uh, if, and you have if you have read in first Corinthians, you know, first Corinthians chapter one, Paul says that for the Jew and for the Gentile, the idea of a suffering substitute was very, very difficult. It was something that they didn't agree with. Uh, Paul says that preaching a crucified Christ was a stumbling block for Jews and a folly for Gentiles. So the idea of God needing to suffer to save his people was was not, in their minds, and for our Jewish readers, was not appropriate. It was not something that they wanted to hear. Same as today. And for those Jewish Christians in the midst of an environment of escalating persecution... As it continued to to grow, it would have been very, very tempting. We understand why they would have wanted to revert back right into their Judaism. Because it would have, hopefully in their minds, would have eliminated some of that persecution. 
It made sense for them to slip back and to renounce their faith in Christ. They would be taking their their suffering into their own hands and seek to eliminate it. So what the author begins to do here in these final verses of chapter 2 is the author argues that, that Christ, being the suffering servant, wasn't cause for them to, to shrink back and to renounce their faith. But it's because he was the suffering servant that they should stand firm in their faith. And again, he gives them Three reasons why. He says that he is the consummate hope. He is their conquering hero. And he is their constant help. Let's look first at Christ as our... Oh, and by the way, he is ours as well. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But let's look first at he being our consummate hope. Look at verse 10. He says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, why was the suffering servant the consummate hope? Well, it's because, first of all, that God had implemented a perfect plan. It was an absolutely perfect plan. He says it was actually fitting to do what God did. It was fitting for God to do what he had done. He was the creator of all things. He was the sustainer of all things. So it was appropriate and consistent with who he was, what he had done, with his character, and even purpose to redeem fallen humanity with the end goal to bring all those for whom Christ died into glory And restore what had been lost and marred in the fall. And it was fitting, it was appropriate and consistent to do so through the son's suffering and death. But not only was it a perfect plan, the author says Jesus was also the perfect person to fulfill that plan. And and really there's two sides, there's two parts to that. First, he was the perfect person in that he was the ideal and only suitable one to fulfill the plan. But he was all he was the only suitable one and the perfect one to do so only because he was in fact a perfect person. The Lord Jesus was a perfect person. He was the God man who the author has described in chapter 1 already as the one who was and is more than a reflection of God, but he's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Paul says that he was the image of the invisible God in whom all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. So he was of the same essence as the father. So because of that, he was he was God. Therefore, he was perfect and holy and without sin. But in the second chapter, what we've seen is him expanding on the extent of his humanity In verse 11, he says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And there are two ways to look at that. There are two ways to interpret that or or that are most common. Uh, The first is that 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 part of uh, verse 11 that says one source refers to Adam. And in referring to Adam as the one source, it communicates that Jesus, like the rest of humanity, descended from Adam. So he shared the same humanity as every other human being. And he expands upon that in verse 14 by saying, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. 
And then down in verse 17, he says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So in other words, he didn't just appear to be human. His humanity wasn't an illusion. He became man in every way. He had a body. He had bones and muscle. He had blood and nerves. He had a brain. He experienced thoughts and emotions. He, he was born. He learned to walk. He learned to fall. He, he grew physically and in wisdom. He ran and he played and he got tired and he got hungry and thirsty and therefore he ate and drank. He got angry. He experienced joy and sadness. He laughed and cried. And of course, above all else, he bled and he died. The second way the first part of verse 11 can be interpreted is is that that source points to God, the Father. And if we interpret it that way, Jesus, it communicates that Jesus and those he sanctifies both share the Heavenly Father in common. we, We don't go wrong either way, but... In the second use, it points to that we share this, the Heavenly Father, in common. And so, as I mentioned, sanctification is a common characteristic of those who are a part of the family of God. And so Jesus is the Son, the only begotten one of the Father. And those who are redeemed and adopted in and through Him are sons and daughters of the Father as well. We both... Call him father. Therefore, the author says, if you'll notice in verse 11, that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers or brothers and sisters. So the author is saying, despite the fact that man is sinful, despite that man is sinful, despite frailties and failures and faithlessness, Jesus doesn't shy away from, nor is he ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And then... And then the author, to build upon that, he does what he's already done numerous times in these first two chapters. And he uses the Old Testament and to express three benefits of him being the older brother. The three verses are from two Messianic passages. John read one from Psalm 22. The other is from Isaiah 8. Both of them... Uh, Being messianic, but both of them have persecution as a backdrop. And of course, both would have been very, very familiar to those Jewish um, Christians to whom he's writing. First in Psalm 22, verse 22, he communicates that as their older brother, Jesus proclaims that he is the one who proclaims the name of and therefore the character of God to his brothers and sisters. He is a good older brother is communicating who God is. And not only does he communicate to them who God is, he leads them in singing and praise to their heavenly father. In the second instance is in the use of Isaiah eighteen seventeen, And he communicates that as their older brother, as their real human brother, Jesus depends upon God the father just like they depend upon God the father. So... He's saying that as they suffered, he wanted them to know that he suffered. As they were weak, he was weak. And then the third use is in Isaiah 18, 18. And he communicates that because Jesus is their older brother, they can have confidence in their future regardless of their circumstances. 
See how important the context is. Remember, we've talked about the possibility of them being hunkered down in a group, in a house, fearing for their lives. And he says, listen, you've got an older brother. He's not going to lose you. And we remember the words from John 6, where Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will, I will raise him up on the last day. What an older brother. So there's a perfect plan. There was a perfect person who fulfilled that perfect plan. But thirdly, he says this, that Christ himself was also perfected through that perfect plan. You like how I'm doing that, right? He was, he himself was perfected through that plan. Look again at verse 10. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, we know, of course, that Christ was perfect and sinless from eternity past. And we've, we've already been talking about that through the last couple of weeks, several weeks. So his being made perfect had to refer to something else other than his character. And it does. Like chapter 1, the author is referring to his capacity as our substitute. He had to be perfected or completed. So what he's communicating is that the eternal son took on flesh, became a man, and did so that he would be our representative. That he would do it in our place. And in the capacity of our, as our representative, he, he was obedient to the point of death on the cross. And by being obedient to the point of death on the cross, he was consecrated. The father consecrated him, set him apart. Fully, he became fully equipped and was qualified because he had been successful in being our suffering Savior. And so his redemptive mission was actually realized. It was completed. It was accomplished. And it was completed in his position that he himself perfected. He did what he was sent to do and his job was therefore complete. So in verses 10 to 14 and verse 17, we've got a perfect plan. We've got a, a perfect person who, who both fulfilled that plan and was perfected by it. And so he says, he's your perfect hope. Right? He's your perfect and complete hope. You're not going to find hope outside of anyone else. He's the consummate hope. And brothers and sisters, he's ours as well. He's ours as well. Well, that's not all, of course. He also goes on to say that Jesus was there and our conquering hero. Verse 10. Again, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing, bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And that word... Uh, founder is translated in many different ways, forerunner, leader, author, captain, champion, and hero. The consensus seems to be that it's best translated pioneer. And as a pioneer, Christ has, and I quote, blazed the trail of salvation that we can now follow. He's blazed a trail. He's gone where no one has gone before and no one has been since because he's done what sinners could not do for themselves. 
F.F. Bruce puts it this way. He says, man created by God for his glory was prevented by sin from attaining glory until the son of man came and opened up by his death a new way by which humanity might reach the goal for which it was made. As his people's representative and forerunner, he has now entered into the presence of God to secure their entry there. But we can't, not really but, but what we also need to remember is not only has he blazed that path, but we need to keep the heroic aspect in play. We need to keep it in our minds because Jesus was victorious by defeating death, destroying Satan, and delivering those who were in slavery to the fear of death. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who was the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Ever, ever since Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden to disregard God and to disobey his word, the consequences and the curse of sin and death has been in play. Death is inevitable. It's an inevitable reality that not only looms over mankind physically, but also emotionally and psychologically and, of course, spiritually. And therefore, we fear it. Mankind fears death. And the readers of this letter, again, in context, are probably in the throes of that fear. And Satan is just fanning the flames of what may have been embers, but he's trying to get them into debilitating flames. And the author says, listen, the son, having become a man, was able to suffer and die. He rose from the dead. He defeated death. And he, de- and he defeated Satan. He rendered, he nullified and rendered Satan idle. He says, neither one has power over you anymore. There is no power. You've been delivered out of the domain of darkness into light. Fear no longer has a hold on you. You've been saved from the power of sin, death, and Satan. He no, the Satan can no longer accuse you. He's been muted. He no longer has dominion. He may and does continue. He seeks to continue to steal, kill, and destroy. But his torment's been nullified. And you you don't have to be anxious. It can be put to rest. Your conquering hero has blazed a trail. He's gone before you. And yes, we can't deny the fact that he has blazed that trail with suffering. Excuse me. He's blazed that trail. He's paved the path with suffering. We can't escape it. But he's conquered along the way. He's conquered the enemies of sin and death. And that path, though paved with suffering, leads. Leads through the cherubim. Into the holy of holies. Not made with hands. Into the presence of the Lord. And he's leading us on that path. He's, the writer says he, he's leading you on that path. 
And I would think that they would, and we've, um, we read it earlier as well. I, I think that they would, in their minds, would even recall that at the end of Isaiah 53, right, we, they as believers, we as, as believers have been described as, um, we're spo- we ourselves are spoils of war. Being brought back by the victor. And also they've, they have received spoils of war, right? They've been given, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, they've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's all theirs. He has gone before and He has led them. He's leading them into glory. He's the ultimate King. He is their conquering hero. And guess what? He's ours as well. He's ours as well. Finally, look at verse 17. He says that the Lord Jesus is there and our constant help. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We see the perfect plan again, right? And the necessity of the perfect plan because the son in taking on flesh suffered and died. And he did so because it qualified him and set him apart to be a faithful and merciful high priest. He had to walk the journey to be who he was to be for his people. It was through his humanity and suffering that he could identify. The author says, listen, don't shrink back from Jesus. Because by becoming a man and by suffering and dying, he was able to do for you what he would not have been able to do otherwise. Because as that suffering substitute and as that merciful and faithful high priest, the compassion that he had for you has become mercy. In other words, he's acted on it. The the compassion has led to him doing something on their behalf. And so he was obedient to the point of death on the cross. And that obedience was for them. The death was for them. And so the father had... He he did perfectly what the father sent him to do. And so again, he was consecrated and set apart for that role. And so in the process and through his death, the writer says, remember, he's appeased God's wrath. He's appeased the father's wrath for his brothers and sisters by bringing the offering of himself... The full and complete and final offering of himself and his blood and his body before the Father as the perfect atoning sacrifice for you. But notice too, the author says that Christ didn't just provide a remedy for sin and then remain aloof or out of touch or disappear. No, he... Because of his humanity and the suffering he endured, it it included the suffering that came with his own temptation. And the author said that he is able. He is able to not just sympathize, but empathize. He empathizes with his brothers and sisters when they're tempted. He who is tempted to do what he should not do. He who is tempted to not do what he should. He who is tempted to be prideful. He who is tempted to be greedy and arrogant and malicious and self-seeking and vengeful. 
and in many other ways common to man. And having suffered the full weight of that temptation, because he himself was sinless, he experienced the full weight, the full weight of that temptation, the full force of that temptation. And so he not only understands their temptation, but he's willing to help. Constantly. Continually. He is a continually present help. He is for us as well. I've said that four times. I've paused before I did it. And so you counted and you knew. But I said it four times because the author says this in verse 16. It is not for angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us. Galatians 3, Paul says, we are Abraham's offspring. Right? We've been, we are Abraham's offspring because we've been united to Christ by faith. So each and every time we've heard that, and as we read this, read, read the author writing to the congregation there, he's writing to us. And everything that he said to the Hebrews is true for you and me as his people. And so what I want to do is I just I want to wrap up with a few questions. I want to ask a few questions and I know it may go against our bent because what we want is advice to go and do something now that we've heard this. I get it. But I want us I want us to hear I want us to hear these questions And I'm doing this because this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing. That's the point. So let me ask you. What trial are you facing? What are you in the midst of? Are you doubting your salvation? Are you wrestling with the assurance of your salvation? Are you frustrated... Over your growth or lack of growth in grace? Are you experiencing a relentless temptation that you are afraid is going to overcome you? Are you bothered by multiple temptations that seem to be around every corner that you walk throughout the day? Do those temptations, singular or plural, do they seem overwhelming and unbearable? Are you wrestling with a besetting sin that you just, you can't seem to mortify? Is your soul weary and tired? Are you not able to see light in the darkness? Are you in the midst of some physical, emotional, or mental suffering? What fear can't you shake? Does the fear of death overwhelm you? Is someone harboring antipathy against you? Are you in a pit of hopelessness and despair? 
Is there a situation that doesn't seem to have a resolution that you can see? Is your sorrow rolling like sea billows? Are you lonely? Have future plans fallen apart in some way? The writer says, whatever you're in the midst of and experiencing. And therefore, the best advice that I can give you tonight is to not look to yourself, to not trust in yourself, to not base anything upon yourself, but to look to Christ. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and pay pay much closer attention to what you've heard and see him. He is the final prophet. He is the ultimate king. He is the perfect priest. And he is our consummate hope and our conquering hero and our constant help. Let's go to him in prayer.